Revelation chapter 5 with verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people, tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then over to Matthew 16. We pick up in the middle with verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Then in Acts chapter 2, with verse 42, we pick up after the, the mass conversion there on the day of Pentecost, And we discover what the the new believers did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Paul's talking here. He's just talked about how God's plan was to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one new humanity uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, And then he talks, says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. I remember many, many years ago, we had a president in the United States, a guy named John F. Kennedy. I don't really remember him. It was when I was wee, a wee little lad, and he was assassinated uh, not long after I, was, uh, after I was born, came into this world. But he was very popular and very famous for uh, a very powerful quote that he said. He said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's my best kind of Massachusetts, Boston kind of accent. And it was very, very powerful. And certainly it's very, very different than what a lot of people ask in the world today. You know, we have a lot of people even in our nation that are crying out and are saying, okay, well, you know, what's, what's the government going to do, do for me? You know, what, what will this new prime minister do to me? do for me? What will the, the Labor Party or, or the Lib Dems or the conservatives do for me? Uh, what will Trump or Clinton do for me? I mean, these kinds of questions come out and they actually find their way into the church life as well. You know, so a lot of times as Christians, uh, we have people that are coming into the fellowship. We have people that come into the church to get involved. And they say, okay, what is this church going to do to me? Do, do to me, uh, do for me. You know, how, how is it going to serve my needs? And in, in fact, we had a, a whole uh, movement that started back in the 1980s of need-based evangelism where the idea was you find out the needs of people and you seek to proclaim the gospel in a way that will meet those needs and, because if people have their needs met, they will come into the church and they will engage in the body of Christ. And that's not entirely wrong, but at the same time, it's not entirely right. And we struggle with that, and we struggle with a, a lot of ideas because we don't really know what the church is. If you go around and you ask people, what is the church? What is the purpose of the church? You'll get a lot of different answers. Uh, and uh, you know, some people will say, well, you know, the church is, is kind of like a social club. Some will say, well, the purpose of the church is evangelism. Uh, some will say, well, it's teaching. You know, any number of things. And then you have a whole host of people who are Christ followers in the world today who will say, well, the church is irrelevant. You know, I don't want to waste my time with the church. Uh, the church is not worthy and why, why should I be a member of a church? You know, all they want is money, and they're always asking for money, and they've got uh, preachers that aren't doing anything except, you know, working one day a week. And, and, and these kind of attitudes are out there. And I've heard many people in the prayer movement actually disparage the church, disparage uh, being involved in a local church, because that's not really where God's at. You know, where God is at is in this prayer movement, or where God is at is in uh, this, this mission society that I'm part of, or where God is at is in this thing that I'm doing, and so on and so forth. And we struggle with this, and we, we can easily get confused, and we say, okay, well, who's right? Who's right? Where, where, where do all these different ideas come from? And why is there so much tension and struggle to understand what the church is? Since clearly, 
in the Bible, the church is absolutely fundamental and something that God created. So why this confusion? And the reason why we have this confusion is actually there's a historical reason behind this. Uh, and there's a, there's a couple of different things. There's actually three different reasons why we have a, a quite a bit of confusion today. The first, and probably the biggest, is something that we would call Christendom. Now, you've probably heard this word Christendom used, and it's used in a lot of different ways, but historically, Christendom describes what happens when, in a society, when, a, when the, the church or Christianity becomes the dominant religion. Christendom really started uh, with the conversion of Constantine when he, as the Roman Empire, decided to follow Jesus, uh, up there in York, by the way, uh, when he decided to follow Jesus, and he said, okay, from now on, the Roman Empire is going to be Christian. So everybody converts to Christianity. Uh, leaders say, you know, it's Christianity. We're going to favor the church. We're going to let Christians thrive. We're going to let them build buildings and, and all these other things that Christians couldn't do up until that time. Now, they went through some persecutions and things after that, but Constantine really initiated uh, Christianity shortly after the uh, Christendom shortly after the year 300. And from that time forward, more or less, in the European nations, what began to happen is that one nation after another, after another, after another, in history unfolding, became dominantly Christian in terms of their religious persuasion. Uh, It never meant that the majority of people in any nation were Christians, But it meant that the focus of the nation and the focus of the church, of religion in the nation, and even the focus of government in the nation became formed around Christianity as the dominant religion. And that describes what happened all throughout Europe, beginning with the year 300 and going up until uh, the, the, the 1500s or so. And so what began to happen was that if you were in Austria, if you were in Germany, if you were in England, it was assumed that if you're English, you're Christian. If you're German, you're Christian. Now, there were different flavors of Christianity, and especially uh, when Luther did his, you know, 95 Theses there in 1517 on, on the Church of the Door in Wittenberg, uh, after that, that initiated a movement where there was conflict, you know, and, and some nations became Lutheran and some nations became Roman Catholic dominated. And then, and then in the United Kingdom, you know, Henry VIII, who was Roman Catholic, he said, well, you're not going to let me divorce my wife uh, and you don't even like it if I kill my wife. So forget that. I'm going to I'm going to be the, the head of the church so I can do what I want. And so you had this whole movement coming across Europe, coming across the nations. And remember, Christianity, as we know it today, around the world was largely exported from Europe, particularly here from the United Kingdom, but also the United States and Christianity in the United States. Obviously, that's all that connection. And so you had this thing called Christendom, where it was assumed that more or less everybody was Christian. 
Now, because of that, what began to happen is, in England, they said, okay, well, we don't want different people fighting with each other. So what we will do, uh, we will draw boundary lines around areas, call those parishes, and we'll make sure that every parish has a church and every parish has a priest that's going to serve that parish. And so if you, if you, had, if you got, had a child in that parish, you had the right to, to baptize the child in the church. If you were going to get married, you got married in that parish, and you had the right to be married in the church because the assumption was that the basic orientation of everybody was toward Christianity. And so in that context, evangelism is not quite as important. Missions are certainly not that important because everybody's Christian anyway, or if they're not Christian now, eventually they will be because that's the orientation of everybody in our society. So that meant that over time, churches then began to seem, you know, in, in some, they, they became community centers. Oftentimes the parish priest was the most educated person in the parish. And so life began to revolve around the church. And even today, parish councils hold a lot of, uh, hold a lot of weight out in, out in the rural areas. And, uh, and then you had the idea, okay, if somebody's struggling, if they're hurting, then they should come into the church and they'll get counseling in the church. And the idea that, uh, of the church as kind of a hospital begins to, to, to take, take its place. And then also, okay, if people want to get an education, not only in Christianity, but even to learn things such as reading and writing, you know, the place to do it, let's go into the church. And so the church became a center for education uh, in the community. Uh, And none of these things are, are, are wrong in and of themselves, mind you. But it's a Christendom orientation and a Christendom mentality. Well, then as time went on, we had what became a concern for people in other nations that they would hear about Jesus because now we begin to hear stories from places like, uh, oh, Burma, you know, exotic places like that and India and Africa of heathens in these lands who worship Buddha or, or worship, you know, spirits and, and they need to know the gospel. And so there was this genuine desire in the hearts of people to take the gospel out into the nations that started large largely with the Moravians in the 1700s, uh, also uh, was influenced a lot by Wesley and Whitfield and, and, and other people like that. But the idea was we're going to take the gospel out of the nations, and the purpose here is to transform those nations into the same kind of quote-unquote civilized society, read Christendom-based society that we have in our home country, whether that's the United States or the United Kingdom uh, or wherever. And so there was this desire that people would come to faith in Jesus. There was a desire to build up churches, but the desire was actually to export our civilized Western-based society into these other nations as if they weren't civilized in and of themselves. And so a lot of our evangelism and a lot of our missionary outreach came out of this whole hunger for Christendom to be exported, to be experienced everywhere in the world. And so we began to think that even in our own country then, okay, we're taking the gospel out, but what about the people in our own nation that are feeling increasingly alienated from the church? Because if you have a Christendom-based church and a Christendom-based society, what you find is that the church mostly begins to speak to the majority of people in that society who happen to be uh, middle class-ish. 
And so the poor people are not feeling like they can engage with that. I remember my mom telling me the story of how when they started going to an Assemblies of God church, it was because they used to go to a Baptist church, but when they moved, the Baptist church closest to them expected a higher quality of clothing on a Sunday than they could afford. And so they went to another church that would not look down on them because of their, their poverty. And so we began to see that many people were being alienated. And so you have people in the 1800s like William Booth rise up and say, hey, we need to be an army and bring social justice into our nation and deal with these people that are being left out, again, without really saying it and without really thinking it, being left out of a Christendom-based mentality. And so what you have coming out of all of that, that none of us can remember a time when this was not true. The only time you can remember this is if you're from another nation, like like Myanmar, like Burma, that was not founded, is not a Christendom nation. That's that's when you, you know and you understand something different about the church of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who have been raised and enculturated in the church and, and baptized in the church, in this kind of mindset, we will have this perspective, and this perspective is all that we know. And this perspective then gives rise to all of these different opinions about what the church should be and do. It should be a hospital. Uh, It should be a worship center. It should be a teaching center. It should be evangelistic. It should be this, that, or the other thing. And then what we do, we take that mentality and we take it back into the Scripture and we start to impose it back on the Bible. And so we begin to read the Bible in light of all these perspectives. And this is what what we are in. The challenge is, though, right now, we are at the end of Christendom. Even though we would like to think that Christendom is still around, and even though we still have some of the same structures of Christendom, for instance, the UK legal system, you know, the UK legal system is based on the Ten Commandments, has been based on the Ten Commandments for... uh, 1,500 years or so. And so that's a Christendom mindset and a Christendom structure. And so we have a lot of these things that are still existing. And so you have some people that say that are still caught in that, longing for the good old days of Christendom. And oh, wouldn't it be nice if we're all you know, back to the way the church was. Some people that are stuck in, in denominational systems that were developed in Christendom, uh, like the Church of England. Who, who are having a difficult time uh, imagining their way out of that because their structure is demanding uh, a certain way of relating and a certain way of acting. And then you have some people who say, well, you know, Christendom's gone. And, and, and so they see the church kind of entrenched in Christendom, not adjusting, not adapting, not understanding that. Uh, and, and so you get all these tensions and all these different perspectives about what the church is, about what the church should do, about who the church is, uh, and so on and so forth. And if you look, that will explain a lot of the tension that you see. And when you hear people reacting against the church, most of the time they're reacting against Christendom and not the church. Most of the time they don't understand the church at all and don't understand what it is. Now, you add to complicate all of this even further, don't you love this, to complicate all this even further, we've had in the last 50, 60 years a rediscovery, it's, it's always been there, by the way, 
You know, there'll be some people who say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit was rediscovered uh, at the Azusa Street Revival. Hey, guess what? The Holy Spirit's always been around. He's always been giving gifts. Uh, he's always been doing his thing. Uh, <clears throat> and the Americans didn't discover the Holy Spirit in Kansas just after the turn of the century. Nor did the Welsh discover the Holy Spirit in Wales after the turn of the century, just in case you were wondering that. But we've had this reemergence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and a reemergence of the need for fivefold ministry. Now, why has that happened? Because in a Christendom mindset, you don't need apostles, you don't need prophets, and you don't need evangelists. You don't need apostles because the, the, the whole place is, is Christ centered already, the whole nation's Christ centered already. You don't need prophets because we already know God's word, it's kind of entrenched in our systems. You don't need evangelists because everybody's going to be a Christian eventually. If they're not now, they will be, uh, or we'll baptize them. And if they don't want to be baptized, we'll force their face in the water and, and make sure they get thoroughly wet, and then they're a Christian. Uh, so you don't need those guys. What you need are pastors and teachers. But now we begin to say, well, wait a second. Maybe Christendom's dying, uh, and there are a lot of countries in the world now that are not Christendom countries uh, that need the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can't just export our Western imperialistic society into these countries, so what are we going to do? Ah, well, maybe we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And so there's been a re-emergence of all of this, and, uh, and this complicates things with regard to a church. Because, hey, Kinsey, because if the church is led by a teacher, guess what the focus is going to be? It's always teaching. Now, we need more classes. You need more knowledge. You get the right knowledge, you'll be a good Christian. If the church is led by a pastor, the focus is going to be, oh, we got to get, we got to stay together. You know, we we need to get healing uh, we need to have lots of healing and comfort one another, encourage you, we need, we need to do that. If the church is led by an evangelist, it's like, we need to be out on the streets, people. Why are you coming here every Sunday wasting your time listening to me when you need to be in Starbucks on a Sunday morning uh, sharing Jesus with people, and if they won't listen to you, take one of those tracks and just stick it right in the middle of their coffee cup so that they have to see it. You know, And if the church is being led by a prophet then it's like, we need to go and declare the word of God. We need to, either it's, okay, God, speak to us, speak to us, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Or we need to get out there on the streets and tell the society about how rotten it is, tell people how bad things are, and bring social justice into the world. And we need to work at social justice and go after social justice. And so you got all these different churches that are rightly oriented around the leader, There's nothing wrong with that, actually. That's a godly thing. But you have to understand, and this is the apostolic perspective talking, you have to understand that all these ministry gifts are needed and all these styles of churches are needed by the body of Christ if we are to do what God has called us to do in the first place. And so that's why we have all this confusion and all these things that, where we misunderstand who we are, who we're called to be, and what God is doing. And now we are going into a time in the history of the world where there's going to be a new reformation where God, what He's going to do is begin to bring the church back to its original purpose in advance of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're part of this. But what is that original purpose? 
Well, we see that in at least three of these passages here that I read today. Uh, The key thing and the key dynamic that comes through all of these passages is that the church is centered on Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus died. He redeemed us by His blood. The confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the one who died on the cross. You are the one who rose again from the dead. The church, our existence, is centered in the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, fully God, fully human, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sin, to atone for our sins, and then rose bodily from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, and one day He's going to come again and bring this whole world into God's order as He judges the living and the dead. It's centered around Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The history of the church, the present of the church, and the future of the church is all about Jesus Christ. And any time that Jesus, as He's revealed in the Scripture, Jesus, as He has demonstrated Himself throughout history, Jesus, as He will be revealed in the future, no longer is the center of the church. The church ceases to be a church. And there are a lot of organizations that call themselves churches in the world today who long ago ceased to be a church because Jesus is not the God that they're worshiping. But Jesus is the center. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the king. Jesus brings us into being. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has drawn us together. And Jesus has created us for this purpose. And everything He's done, everything He is, He's done for us. And so we could be His church. We could be His body. We could be His people. And with that as the foundation, and that as the heart, and that as the center, we see a number of themes that start coming through. They're in Revelation. We talked about this last week. What's the declaration? We have been redeemed from every nation, every people, every tribe, every tongue. We have been redeemed for all of, from all of humanity to be a new humanity that is a kingdom and priest to our God. The first dynamic of who we're called to be is a kingdom. We are called to be a, a, a mini kingdom of God here on the earth. I love, uh, uh, there's been a, a, a I think, a, a television program about this, but uh, uh, quite, quite some time ago, well over 100 years, a couple hundred years ago, uh, a group, I believe, of Welsh people went from Wales to Patagonia in Argentina and built what is essentially a Welsh city there. And even today, they still have Welsh culture and Welsh celebrations And what they've done is they took a little kingdom and they created in an alien land, they they created a bit of Wales. That's the idea. That's what God has called us to do. He has set us here in this alien world to create a little bit of the kingdom. We are the kingdom. We are to embody the kingdom We are to hold the values of the kingdom. We are to do the works of the kingdom. And we are to invite people into the kingdom, citizenship into the kingdom through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the kingdom of God. We are to embody the kingdom of God. We are to be a society of the kingdom. 
we are to be a people of the kingdom. And as a people of the kingdom, we are also priests to our God. We exist to worship God. You know, there'll be one activity that continues throughout all eternity. And it won't be prophecy. It won't be tongues. It won't be healing. It will be worship. And we are created to worship God. So the church exists to be the kingdom of God here in this world, a demonstration of God's kingdom, an outpost of God's kingdom, the embodiment of God's kingdom, and to worship God. And we are to do that first so that we can assault the gates of hell that have been established here in this world. There are people around us, seven and a half million people around us right now, by the way, that are going to hell without Jesus. And we are, as the kingdom of God, to invite people into this kingdom and to take this kingdom out to see these people come into the kingdom of God and with the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Satan cannot win. Satan is already defeated. He cannot win this situation. He cannot defeat us. Jesus has already won the victory. And so the promise is that as the kingdom of God, the embodiment of God's kingdom, the people of God's kingdom, worshiping God, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And God has done this according to Paul there in Ephesians chapter 3, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be displayed to the principalities and powers through the church. We exist as the kingdom of God as an affront to the principalities and powers that rule this world. Our very existence is an act of spiritual warfare. Our very existence is a demonstration of God's greatness, a demonstration of God's glory, a demonstration of God's majesty, a demonstration of God's kingdom. Our very existence is an affront to everything that Satan wants to do and everything the kingdoms of the world want to establish. And that's why if you're in places like Burma or you're in places like China or you're in places like Iran... Unlike our Christendom-based society where we get really upset when people, when the government persecutes us a little bit, in these nations, the leaders of these nations understand that the church by its very existence confronts their legitimacy. The church by its very existence says to the government of Burma, You are not really the government of this nation. You are not really the government of this world. Who really rules the world is Jesus Christ and this body of people is a demonstration. That's why the Chinese government, they don't like Christians. They can't stop it, but they don't like it. Why? Because I was just sharing this week, Paul Martin, our, our, uh, uh, our solicitor here at City Temple, we were chatting and he was telling me about a guy that he met in a nation, I won't tell you that's China, but uh, it meant a nation, and he's a businessman, never had any training at all, uh, but uh, he ended up starting a, a, a little, you know, house group in his home, 450 people that gather every week. It's a big house, but he does just about every day of the week. And this is happening because 
the church of Jesus Christ as the kingdom of God and as the embodiment of God's kingdom and as the extension of God's kingdom is an affront to the kingdoms of this world. And that's what we exist for. We display the manifold wisdom of God. That God wasn't uh, thwarted by our sinfulness. That God wasn't thwarted by the rebellion of Satan. That God is not thwarted by the rebellion of human beings. That God is not thwarted by the corruption of this world. That God in His wisdom had destined His own Son to come and display God's glory and God's love and God's greatness and God's majesty and God's grace to display this and to redeem to Himself from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue a people to be this demonstration of the kingdom. A society of kingdom people. A household of God that is part of God's family that exists in the world to display the glory of Jesus Christ into all the universe. To extend the kingdom of God. To see real transformation happen all across the world. And that is God's design for the church. That is why we exist. That is why Jesus has called us into being. That is why City Temple has been here for 376 years. And that is why City Temple, God willing, will be here until Jesus Christ comes again. We exist for this purpose. We live for this purpose. Everything we are revolves around this purpose. Uh, We are not really a hospital. We are not uh, just a, a club. We are not a, just a community center. Although all these things are great and you know, praise God for people getting healed and people getting set free. But you know the people don't get healed and set free because churches act like hospitals. People get healed and set free because churches act like the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God sees the sick healed. The kingdom of God sees demons flee. The kingdom of God sees the good news preached to the poor. And that's why people get healed. And that's why people get set free. And that's why we exist. And we are entering a time where God is going to reveal this. We've been hidden for a long time. As a church, we've been hidden. And that's actually okay. You know, because if you've got a government that's bigger and powerful, more powerful than you, the one thing you don't want to do is go right up in the face and give them two fingers. You know, some of the guys here could tell you what would have happened if they had done that to the government in Myanmar. It would not have worked out well for them. I'm safe to say, right? You just don't do that. There needs to be a time of hiddenness until everything God has in place is revealed. And then the revelation comes and the multiplication comes. But let that not change why we exist and what the church is. And even God has given that. And the vision he has for us, we call it the citadel vision. And what is the idea of the citadel? The citadel is an outpost of the kingdom in a strange land. You know, Edward, King Edward, he could never conquer the Welsh. He tried, but the Welsh are tough. So what he decided to do okay, I can't conquer these guys, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a bunch of castles and I'm going to force people to live in the castles in Wales and eventually we'll take over. That's what he did. And so Conway, uh, Carnarvon, uh, all the big castles there, Beaumarie, in Wales were created by Edward for that purpose. And God has established us here in the city of London 
one of the most hostile places in the world to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, to be an outpost of his kingdom, to be a citadel, to advance his loving rulership into this city and into the world around us. And that's why we exist. But there's a challenge. And if you're reading this passage from Ephesians, you'll, you'll pick up on this. You'll pick up on this. Paul, he says this. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Why would he say this? I mean, you look at Ephesians, uh, the church in Ephesus, one of the healthiest churches uh, in Paul's day. Uh, the, the letter to the church there has none of the real criticism like, you know, Corinth. Man, that's a messed up bunch of people. But uh, the Ephesians, boy, they've got unity. They're exploring, expanding. You know, all these great things are happening there. He's just talked to them about the new humanity. He's talked to them about being created for good, for, in Christ for good works. Uh, he's talked to them about all these kinds of things. And then he says, you know, don't lose heart. Now, what, what's happening with Paul? Paul's in prison at the moment when he's writing this. And he's struggling. And he says, don't lose heart. Why? Because it's very easy for us to start to focus on outward circumstances and lose heart. The people of Paul's day, if they would have focused on what Paul was suffering, the guy that founded the church, now he's in prison, what's the deal? How how can you say Jesus, we're the kingdom of God when the kingdom of this world clearly have got you in jail and ultimately killed a man? And he says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. And you know, you look at City Temple, and it's quite easy to lose heart. You know, you see, sometimes uh, we, we seem to grow in numbers, and sometimes we seem to decline in numbers. We're going through a season right now that God has called the clearing out, uh, you know, which is a, a, a a reassignment of a number of people in different ways in different places, uh, a clearing out of good things and also clearing out of, of sin issues in our lives, you know, dealing with all of this and we're in this season. That means some people will leave, some people will come and you look at that and you look at this building and you think, okay, one day uh, this building had been full, uh, in fact, a couple of times on a Sunday and when this building was open, there's pictures of people queuing all the way out around the block just to get in. And it used to be that if you didn't get into this church uh, at least uh, 30 minutes before the service started, uh, your best hope of finding a seat would be in the basement. Uh, And if you didn't get here at least 15 minutes before the service started, forget even finding a seat. When John Rockefeller came, he had the misfortune of just being on time for the service. Uh, This would be in the 1930s, had the misfortune of being on time for the service and uh, had to sit in the kitchen because that was the only place that anybody could find him a place to sit. And so you look at that, and you think of that, and then you look and see, you know, this this small group of people in this place, and it would be so easy to lose heart. 
So easy to say, what in the world am I doing traveling here? What am I doing being a part of this? What am I doing going through the the hassles and the headaches? Because it's not easy for almost anybody to be a part of City Temple. You know, why why would I endure all of this? You know, maybe I need to go to a bigger church. You know, there's that that Hillsong place. Boy, that's a happening group of people. Lots of of happy, you know, dancing, clappiness going on down there. Or or Kensington Temple or, or HTB or any number of other churches churches that are around that seem to be bigger and healthier and 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 it's easy to lose heart and Paul says don't do it don't do it do not lose heart because the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in this place to the principalities and powers that exist here in London And we are an outpost of God's kingdom. And God's purpose in us, though we be small in number, is that Jesus be great in our midst. And so we press on. We press on with the reality of who we are. We press on with the reality of who we're called to be. We press on with the reality of who Jesus is. Because beginning and end, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the manifold wisdom that you have displayed and are displaying in and through us. And I thank you for the future that you have planned for us as City Temple to see your kingdom manifest in even greater measure, to see as we pray your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth in London as it is in heaven. And so we look for that, Lord God. And we pray for your encouragement. We pray that we would not lose heart. We pray that you'd enable us to focus on Jesus and love one another and be the kingdom manifestation you have called us to be to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. For we thank you, we honor you, we worship you and adore you and pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.